So I'm in front of the group and we've got the white, you know, the fancy flat screen up and we're doing stress testing showing that, you know, if I live till I'm 110 and I take the spending I currently am doing now and I, I triple it, you know, my odds of running out of money are pretty much zero. I, I live a pretty simple life. I was very frugal because I was working all the time. Um, <laughs> and I realized, oh my gosh, I have achieved my goal of being in a place where I have complete financial independence. And yet I am continuing to not live. I'm like a ghost of a, a human just coming in every morning, trying to suck up more accolades, do more work, get more positive affirmation from people that I am worthy, which also in the business world goes along with wanting to get paid more. That's another way people show you in the business world. And I just started crying in that meeting. It just was such a revelation that I had reached my goal at the expense of living. Hey friends, welcome to The Good Life with Michelle Lamoureux, a show for women in midlife who want to live happier, healthier, and more meaningful lives. I'm your host, Michelle Lamoureux, a self-love coach and the author of Design a Life You Love. And together we're going to be doing just that. Each week, I bring on world-class experts, best-selling authors, leading entrepreneurs, and also do solo casts with the intention of inviting you to get connected to what you really desire from your life. This show is produced with love every week. There's inspiration and actionable tips in every episode because I want to see women playing a starring role in their lives instead of living on the sidelines. Be sure to join the Good Life Community newsletter over at thegoodlifecoach.com for more inspiration and tips to live your best midlife. And make sure you're following the show on your favorite podcast player. I'm so glad that you're here. Hey friends, it's Michelle Lamoureux. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to talk about how to balance financial health and emotional health with financial expert. Manisha Takor. She's a Harvard MBA and the author of Money Zen, The Secret to Finding Your Enough. Being trapped on the hamster wheel of hustle culture for virtually her entire adult life nearly destroyed Manisha's relationships, health, and sense of self-worth. So she set out to understand why so many of us develop toxic relationships around work, money, and success at the expense of our emotional well-being. Manisha has worked in financial services for over 30 years with an emphasis on women's economic empowerment and financial well-being. She's a nationally recognized thought leader in the space and has been featured in a wide range of publications. Prior to writing Money Zen, Manisha co-authored two personal finance books for women in their 20s and 30s, and today her work focuses on helping individuals of all ages to balance financial health, and emotional wealth. Welcome, Manisha. Michelle, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to dive into your book, Money Zen. It's a cool word. You're going to have to define it for us because I think it's going to set the tone for the entire conversation. Sure. So one of the things I noticed during my fifth, my 30 years working in the financial services industry was how much stress money brought to people's lives. And, 
you know, it, it makes sense because we're not taught about it formally in school. It's this kind of taboo topic. There are so many different issues that um, are embedded in money. But I met very few people that felt calm or, or confidence or clarity around their money. And I thought, that's what I want people to have. I want them to have money zen. And, and that's how the word originally uh, came together. I was actually in Santa Fe, of all places, New Mexico, when it popped into my head. They say it's a vortex. So I don't know if it, maybe it was meant to be that it all came <laughs> together that way. I love, I love that. Well, so you have written a couple books on money, obviously, around financial, uh, you know, how to manage money, right? I mean, so to help give literacy around that. This one is different, though. And so how how does it differ? It's totally different. There are no mentions of the um, stock market or of budgets or getting out of student loan debt. Um, in, uh, in my work as a financial literacy advocate, um, what I discovered was that you can teach people the basic facts around how to deal with their money. And that is extremely important. But if you don't help people deal with their money mindset and their emotions around money, it doesn't matter how much knowledge somebody has. If they've got um, a a deep feeling of of scarcity from issues growing up, or they have um, feelings of guilt because they might have money that they've inherited and don't feel worthy of it. If you don't address those issues along with the factual issues, um, coming back to the word we started with, you won't have money zen. Yeah. And you learned this yourself. And this is really the catalyst, right? I mean, who are you writing this book for? I am writing this book for anybody that can identify with the experience that I had, which was basically having such a toxic relationship with money. Um, I literally, Michelle, had gotten to the point where I came to believe that my self-worth was literally determined by my net worth. And so I had such a toxic relationship with money and work and accomplishments. And it was like I had this big gaping hole inside of me. And it didn't matter how much of those things I piled into it. It was never enough. And I wanted to figure out how, you know, because basically what happened is I, I, I woke up in midlife and I, I realized that I'd spent virtually my entire adult life um, as a human doing instead of a human being. And I wanted to figure out, like, how did this happen? Um, and what can I do about it going forward? And as I dove into the research to understand how this can happen and, and, and what to do, I became... Um, it transformed my life. And I realized I couldn't stay quiet. I had to share this with anyone else who can identify with any part of feeling it's never enough or I'm never enough. Yeah. And people are going to resonate with it. And I'd actually like to read a part of your book 
because you talked about what you're talking about. You talk, you call it the cult of never enough in your book. And you said that it nearly destroyed your relationships, your health and your self-esteem, which we're going to get into in a bit. But you write, the cult of never enough is open to anyone at any income level. I've met underpaid and underappreciated teachers who are obsessed with putting in just one more hour to help a student in need and giving everything and then some to their jobs, but rarely taking the time to attend to their own needs. I've had entrepreneurs show up to my office in the latest model Range Rover and designer clothes only to discover they are cash strapped and awash in debt, yet unwilling to downsize their lifestyle because they have deep shame about what their friends would think if they knew just how precarious their finances were at this time. I've met full-time students with full-time jobs and massive student loan debt who feel embarrassed that they can't keep up with the spending habits of their debt-free peers, believing that their smaller bank accounts balances somehow make them less worthy of these friendships. I've counseled frazzled moms who are the primary breadwinners and their families, chief caregivers, cooks, and classroom cupcake makers who are scared to lighten up on all these responsibilities because somehow not quote unquote doing it all would make them feel as if they've failed. Make no mistake, the cult of never enough includes a very diverse group of individuals. So I thought this was really important. I mean, this is at the heart of, you know, what set you on this path, but tell us what is this? How do we fall into this trap of the cult of never enough? Because I think people are going to hear themselves in some of those examples. Yeah. And, you know, Michelle, I thought heading into my research that I was going to find out there was a clear factor and I would be able to flip the light switch and turn it off and that would fix everything. <laughs> and instead, what I what I found was it like so many deep rooted pains or uh, empty spots or achy spots that we have in our in our souls. Um, it has a multifaceted root cause and at the highest level. What causes never enough thinking is a combination of three broad factors, personal, what I call small T traumas, although they could also be big T traumas, Yes. Um, uh, social and cultural influences, which I'll, I'll lump together, and then evolutionary biological factors. And the mix between the three varies from person to person. Some may have all three, some may just have one, um, but it's the intersection of all of them that that sucks us into this cult of never enough, this, this feeling that no matter how much we do, we can always be doing more. We didn't talk about this before we started recording, but I heard you on a podcast I want to say maybe five years ago, it may have been, were you ever on with Farnoosh on So Money? Oh yeah, absolutely. And you told your Farnoosh. child, yeah, I don't know her, but um, I heard, I think that's the one I heard you on. And um, you were talking about your childhood traumas. And I remember having all this like empathy for your experiences. And it seems what's interesting to me is because at that time you were talking about the finances and helping people understand how to be, uh, speak the language and really embody like, you know, uh, accessing their ability to save money and do all the, the important things. And it's so cool to see where you are now, because probably then you were still in this mindset 
of this cult of never enough of the striving and the doing and, you know, showing up versus the being. So it's kind of interesting to see this, where this conversation and you telling that same story, which we will in a moment of your childhood, I'm curious how it's going to land for you. Oh, I love that, Michelle, because yes, you're right. Five years ago, I was smack in the belly of the beast. Um, I, my life was, was bleak to put it mildly in so many different facets. Um, I was drained to the core and all that teaching and talking about money, um, came from a place that we'll, really, cause you said, we'll dive into more, but it was this thought that if I could earn enough money, I would never be hurt again the way I was hurt when I was growing up. And yeah. that for me was a big part of driving myself um, to chase after uh, money and, and work accolades um, to literally feel that if anyone hurt me or I was ever in a position where I felt so outside um, I would have the financial wherewithal to change my situation. Yes. And there's some good to that. Let's face it, there is, but it was to an extreme. And it sounds like you've got initiated into this cult when you, there was a, there's a great part in the book where you're on an airplane and you meet this woman and you're just really not in a good place. And uh, she hands you a yellow pill. Can you tell this story? Oh, yes. Okay. So I, I want you to envision this. I'm, I'm kind of at the height of my corporate um, uh, fancy smancy heydays. And I'm um, it, in- How old are you? Um, I'm at this point um, in my, my early 30s. Okay. Um, and I was um, running, I had- had an idea for a new business for the firm I was working for. And my, the, the man who ran the firm or owned it was amazing. He let me run with it. And it had turned out to be phenomenally successful, but I was working seven days a week. I was on a plane every four days. Um, and uh, so I had a lot of points to get upgraded. <laughs> so I'm sitting here in first class um, in seat 1B, so this woman comes by and the best way I can describe her is to say envision um, Miranda Priestly in The Devil Wears Prada, the Anna Wintour character with, you know, that wealthy woman, precision haircut at, you know, deck to the nines and the most unbelievable couture level type clothing. And I'd seen her before. She, she worked in the industry and she happened to be sitting a couple rows behind me on the plane and, you know, running up to the bathroom and back to her seat she she saw me in this state and um i mean literally like mascara smeared the whole, i mean i was i i was almost having like that full body kind of shaking crying because all i could think of is i have literally no energy and i have no idea how i'm gonna make it through i can't remember what it was seven eight meetings that i had over the course of the next two days. And so she came by and she brought me this, it was in this gorgeous, I'll never forget silver pill case. And she leaned down next to me and she, she opened the pill case and said, you know, here, take this. And <laughs> oh I, I, I literally did not even ask what it was. I just popped the pill. Um, and it did make me feel better. 
Um, but that's how low I was that it, it literally did not even occur to me to ask what she was handing me. What did she give you? Uh, she handed me Valium. Um, and uh, as I later learned um, in the uh, financial services industry, and, and I'm sure in many other industries that are very high stress like that, um, she wasn't the only person taking them. And soon I wasn't the only person oh taking them. Goodness. Oh, my goodness. And then she was also dressed to the nines, as you mentioned, and you were you were that wasn't your priority at the time, but it, it definitely started influencing the way you spent, didn't it? Oh, definitely. I mean, one of the things I, I bumped into her uh, a, a while later um, at another conference, we never became friendly, um, but I was wearing what I thought at the time was, you know, the height of a logical business outfit. It was a brown knit suit with, you know, chunky heels that are, you know, easy to walk in and not get blisters. And she came up uh, to to see how I was doing and kind of gave me that once over and um, <laughs> said, you know, next time in your and you're in New York, uh, you need to visit my stylist at Armani. And she didn't mean like the Armani section of the department store. She meant um, Armani. Yeah. And that was, a, that was a tipping point. That was a tipping point for you. Yeah. I mean, I became to see, you know, these status things as like peacock feathers, right? And that's, you know, like if we're out in the wilds of the corporate world, we're judging each other. What what bag does she have? What shoes is he wearing? What watch does he have on? You know, what, what um, jacket does she have? Um, and yes. so, you know, we, we make judgments um, yes. about these external things about people's insides. Yes. You were talking in the book. So beyond just Right. The clothes and the bags, it was the bonuses and comparing, you know, all, you know, where you kind of fell in the rankings and everything. It was just really just getting caught up in the cult of never enough. But as I was reading your book, mm. I couldn't help but think, and this is before I realized they'd heard you before. And I thought, what's the childhood wound here? I just had a sense. I just had a sense. And so I'm again going to read from your book because um, you talked about the busy badge and this concept. You said the power of a busy badge is that it can cover up all sorts of bumps, bruises, and unhealed wounds. And I suspect that many other workaholics got their badges as adolescents, just like me. When I was um, reading your story, um, I was thinking, okay, what's we're going to get to this wound. And you wrote deep down, I believe that if I had just had enough money in the bank and accomplishments under my belt, I would never again be in a situation, stuck in a situation where I felt dismissed and diminished by peers as I did growing up. So tell us about your childhood because clearly, and I think people are going to relate to this. And also I'm first generation American on my mom's side, second on my dad's. I remember growing up and having my teachers, it wasn't my peers, the teachers would say to me, I don't know if you ever got this one, what are you? Did you ever get yes. that question? What are you? What a weird question going into elementary preschool and you have your kindergarten teachers asking, what are you? I didn't understand the question, but I got it repeatedly. I, I haven't heard it in a little while, but even into, you know, in my thirties, people would still ask me when they meet me because they want to place you so they could feel comfortable. What are right. you? Right. It's not from a bad place, but gosh, does that make you know that you're somehow different than you're? And I went to a very uh, diverse public Boston school, you know, but somehow I still was very different to they didn't know how to place me. 
you know, there's a slight side tangent, but we'll bring in a bit of pop culture here. I'm a, a huge fan of the British royal family drama, and I have been for a couple of decades. <laughs> but recently there was, um, you know, in the aftermath of Meghan Markle and Harry, there's been an attempt by the palace to be um, more inclusive. And so uh, a one of the more senior female members of kind of the staff, if you will. Yes. Um, uh, they they were holding a conference for um, uh, local nonprofit leaders, and the the uh, uh, older British woman said to one of the winners of an award that had come in, "You know, where are you from?" And she said, I, "I'm from Britain." No, no. Where are you from? I, oh, I was that. I was born yeah. in London, and they kept. She kept asking, kept asking, and finally, the woman explains, like, well, historically, my yes. ancestors come from the Caribbean, and she wrote about it on Twitter and just talking about what that felt like. And so, um, this issue of who are you and where are you from, yeah, um, is still a very heated one and can yes. hurt at any age. Yes. Uh, I got that. Where are you from young. too? With the digging. And like, it's like, I'm from Boston. No, where are you from? I'm like, and as I got older, I understood it meant what's your ancestry. Cause I'm like, right. I'm American. That wasn't good enough. No, no. What's okay. You want to place me. I get it. So it took a long time, but it does leave a wound, a little T trauma as you talked about. So tell us about your little T traumas that you got. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, Michelle, for the longest time, I kind of blocked it out because I felt so embarrassed that something so seemingly minor yes. could cause me so much pain. I'm 53 now, but it was probably until my early 40s that when I, whenever, whenever I talked about this, my voice would crack, tears mm. would come to my eyes. I mean, it, it took a long time. Um, and I think this book project to really help me kind of come to terms with it. And again, I almost feel silly saying it out loud because it, it seems so small, but I grew up in a small town in Indiana. I'm mixed race, um, half uh, Asian Indian and, and half melting pot American. Um, and, you know, growing up, I was chubby and I had you know, a funny name and I had Coke bottle glasses and I had psoriasis, which is a skin condition that leaves you with very scaly patches. And mine were very um, visible on my joints um, and in, in my, uh, my knees, my elbows, my scalp. Um, and also uh, lots of Indian women have hair on their upper lip. And in India, it's not a big deal because you, you know, your aunties or your mom, or you go and you get it threaded. Um, as in many um, other countries where, um, from a heritage standpoint, facial hair on, on women is not a, an odd thing. Um, but in this small town in Indiana with my American mom, um, there are no threading studios. She had no idea what to do. And I mean, <laughs> kids are so mean. You know, they called me cow butt, thunder thighs, mustache mouth. Um, and it, it got to the point that when I was in sixth grade, I couldn't take it any longer, you know, going into the gymnasium for lunch and being, um, you know, now we'd call it bullied back then. We just called it teased. Um, and I literally 
started signing out at the principal's office. I lived a couple blocks away from um, school and, and both of my parents um, worked and I didn't have a key because my mom was a teacher. So she'd be home when I got home. Yes. And I literally sat under the picnic table for lunch every single day during sixth grade, rain or shine, mm-hmm. um, without, without lunch, <laughs> um, just oh, sitting you didn't there have because any food. you didn't bring your food. I, I, I didn't want my parents to know, um, what was happening. So I didn't want to take food and, and that's right. You told them you were going to eat your mom's what, what her. Well, well so when I, when I left school, I would t- tell the, 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 um, uh, the principal's assistant that I was checking out to go home for my mom's taco or taco salad. <laughs> and like once during like one of those parent uh, teacher family nights going through, uh, my mom was uh, by this woman and she says, you know, to my mom, oh, I hear you make the most amazing um, taco salad. And my mom was, I remember her being like, what was that? <laughs> um, so, but I can't tell you what an effect that sequence of events that I just described, which in the scope of one's life, you might think like, okay, whatever, um, literally just cut me to the core and made me seek external validation, which starting in sixth grade, I was a good student. I latched on to good grades and um, accolades from teachers. And then, you know, as I got past high school and college and got out in the real world, well, what are your accolades there? Money, promotions, titles. Um, and so, you know, when I trace it all back, that pain, um, that what they call little T trauma um, is, is what really got me going, just feeling so unwanted and like a misfit and like I didn't matter. And um isolated. Yeah, that's really painful. And I think, you know, I don't know if you were, um, even if you weren't sensitive, but if you are sensitive, like I know as a sensitive kid, like things that especially other kids say to you, that's, it's, it's hurtful. And those were mean things that they were saying. Those are very mean things. And if you don't feel like you even have just that one best buddy, you can go just sit and eat with, you develop, literally it was like a survival skill. And to think about actually how smart you were to come up with the taco, (laughs) it's actually quite smart. You know, that was in terms of survival, right? So you, you made it so that you could have that sense of peace, but you didn't eat, you didn't eat. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. They say, you know, one of the things I learned on this journey, speaking of evolutionary biology and small T traumas. And the intersection is, you know, our brains aren't really fully formed until age 25. And so, so many of us will go through situations like this. And as I interviewed women for the book, I mean, I found examples and it literally could be a certain sentence or one event that happened in in a situation where they felt so cut down or dismissed. Um, And that single event just grew like a, a a seed a weed in in their um in, in their soul and in their self confidence and then of course for people who experience big t trauma um you know it's all of this on steroids yes but the little t traumas are tricky because it does sometimes take 
decades to peel back the layers to go, oh, yes, I can see the connection now, but you were so in it to the point where you talked about in your book how you were ill twice, once from a mosquito bite and once where you barely could walk. And I'll let you tell what happened, but I think this is really important. It's interesting. The episode that just released today on my podcast was a woman who experienced burnout. She pushed herself to the point where she actually wanted to take her life. She had hit such a bad tipping point and she first was in the hospital and worked through and was like, bring me my laptop and like had to get shut off from her email and still found ways to work. And the second time, um, she was put on meds that triggered some um, a bipolar disorder and stuff and depression and all, all this stuff. So, so I'm just, so it's real. And I think in the corporate environments or entrepreneurship, I mean, we talked about moms, like everyone's pushing themselves, but there's so many layers to this stuff, but I think hearing stories helps somebody else go, okay, if she's brave enough to tell hers, I can at least look at mine you know, and maybe that I can do something differently. So I think it's, it's, I, I appreciate you sharing the stories you did in the book. I'll tell you, my eyes are tearing up um, as you tell that story. And my voice is shaking because um, I, I was at that place where, you know, I, I didn't want to be here anymore. Um, it was just so, um, it, I, I feel I've been there and this kind of, um, uh, never enough thinking can can lead people to this this place. And um, similarly, um, to your guest, who, the episode that aired today, I ended up in the hospital twice. The first one um, was uh, I my ex husband and I were on an off road motorcycle trip in Laos of all places. Um, he was a a, a uh, off-road motorcyclist and I used to ride on the back you and we actually saw almost 36 countries together wow. or actually I should say we went through 36 countries together um but I rarely was paying attention because I always had um audiobooks playing in my ear about business and in in you know all different aspects of yes. of business but anyway on our very last day, we happened to be in Vientiane, in the capital. Um, and so, of course, I went to a cafe um, to work. And the entire time we were in the jungles, I was really good about having my mosquito repellent on everywhere. But this day in the city, um, I was in an outdoor cafe. I put it on, but I sweated it off, and I didn't think to do a second application. And I got bit by an infected mosquito, and I came down with dengue fever, which is also known as breakbone fever because it literally feels like somebody is crunching your bones. And it's a virus. Um, millions of people around the world get it. We don't hear a lot about it because most of them make less than $5 a day. So the pharmaceutical companies haven't had a big incentive to mm. go, you know, uh, figure that out. Um, but, but in certain situations, it can lead to death from complications wow. um, due to organ failure. And in, in my case, um, through a, a series of Murphy Law kinds of um, episodes in the hospital, um, that's what happened to me. And I can quite literally remember at this point, I was uh, taken back to the US and I was in a hospital and um, the doctor um, called my family in 
Um, and so my parents flew from the East Coast and my brother um, flew um, from my parents came from North Carolina. My brother came from D.C. and they were they were all there and they it, it, it was touch and go for oh, um, 24, 48 hours. Um, and then I made it through that period and within couldn't have been more than a week. I'm still at the hospital. And one of the first things I do is reach out to my assistant and have her come to my bedside so we can plan how I'm going to power through the four months of bed rest I've been assigned. Um, and the one thing I'll say about that episode is um, I can remember in the emergency room at one point where, um, you know, you can see that look in the, the medical staff's eye when you know something's really wrong. Um, and I remember thinking, it is so true. You don't think on your deathbed that you wish you had worked more. I know that sounds so cliched, but literally all I could think was, why didn't I spend more time with my family? And um, yeah, and then so quickly, Michelle, so quickly, I bounced back into this workaholic behavior. Fast forward another five or so years, um, because my um, adrenal system had been, um, my organs that uh, were having trouble were my lungs and my, my um, uh, adrenal system. Um, about five years later, um, I found myself unable to stay awake. I'd be literally in the office and I'd do a meeting and I'd have to crawl into the wellness room, which was actually at that time, the room where mothers pumped. Um, and curl up on the floor, set my alarm and sleep for, you know, as long as I could before the next meeting. And finally got to the point where I could stay awake about five hours a day, literally. Mm. And then I started developing a really high fever and um, uh, inflamed welt-like areas all over my body. And um, went to the doctor. She's like, oh my God, they sent me immediately to the hospital. And I can remember the phlebotomist um, looking at the list of um, things I was being tested for and the number of vials of blood, um, looking at me and saying something like, like, what's wrong with you? Um, or, you know, I, I, I wonder what's wrong with you. And, and I mean, I just burst into tears. And it, bottom line, what ended up happening was my body was attacking itself. My autoimmune system was like, well, if you're not going to slow us down, Manisha, we are going to slow you down. Um, and that was um, another really big wake up uh, call and one that got me a lot closer to realizing that something was seriously wrong in the way I was living my life and the way I thought about my worth as a human. Oh gosh. Um, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I read it in the book, but having you say it is it's a different energy. And it's interesting that the interview that came out today was sort of aligned with what we're talking about, because in that interview, and it's what you're saying, even with the severity of the situations, it still wasn't enough because the brain, you know, she was saying her brain just wasn't in its right place to like still get it. So for you, what was that tipping point? When did you finally realize like, okay, the, no, like 
get that sense of clarity enough to shift because this is patterning that you adopted from childhood trauma, little T or big, doesn't matter. Trauma is trauma. So how did you get out? So after this episode, once again, I was put on a, a course of, of bed rest uh, that I uh, managed to, you know, continue to work my way through. With your laptop and your, and your bed with you? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and um, the, uh, I went, when I finally was able to go back to work, ironically, I went into a client meeting. And it was with um, a prospective client who was very private and didn't want to share her finances. And the wealth management firm that I was working for at the time, we had a really intimate process of um, working with clients. And one of the things we wanted to show prospective clients was our what we call discovery process. And so since she didn't want to share the information necessary to go through the process, I allowed the team to do it on me with yes. my financials. Yes. And so we started to walk through the story of, of my money and how I came to have what I had. And, you know, and I talked about how I graduated from college, about $2,000 from my parents, paid it back in six months and everything else um, that I had, I had earned myself. Yeah. And, you know, as I started telling this, I started feeling very proud of how hard I had worked to amass the, 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 the nest egg that I had. And then we started doing the math. And I had done the math on this so many times, Michelle, like, that's what I did for a living. I knew the numbers, but I had never analyzed the numbers in the context of my emotions and my, my story and, and, and my feelings yeah. I'm in, in front of the group and we've got the white, you know, the, this, the fancy uh, flat screen up and we're doing stress testing showing that, you know, if, if I live till I'm 110 and I take the spending I currently am doing now and I, I triple it, um, you know, my odds of running out of money are pretty much zero. I, I live a pretty simple life. I was a very frugal because I was working all the time. Um, <laughs> and so um, I realized, oh my gosh, I have achieved my goal of, of being in a place where I have complete financial independence. And yet I am continuing to not live. I'm like a ghost of a, a human just coming in every morning, trying to suck up more accolades, do more work, get more positive affirmation from people that I am worthy, um, which also in the business world goes along with wanting to get paid more. That's another way people show you in the business world. Um, and um, I just started crying in that meeting. It just was such a revelation that I had reached my goal at the expense of living. Like, let's take a breath with that. That's huge. And I just, I just see it, right? So it's like that little T trauma, it just came full circle and you just, it just, it hit. Finally, it hit. You reached that point where you could say, so like little Manisha, Manisha, like you're okay. I've got you. Like we're actually truly okay. And so that set you on this path and to write this book, I love giving people tangible things they can do because there's going to be people I know, people I worked with in corporate. Like this was, I worked in a law firm. I had it up marketing for a major law firm in Boston for a long time. 
And, you know, you'd feel guilty leaving if I, you know, if I didn't put in 10, 12 hours a day, I would, I never left at five. I never would have even right. thought about that. I just feel guilty. Like, but also there was just so much to do. And I loved work. Maybe you loved work. So it gives you a sense of fulfillment. So there were those pieces of it, but it comes at an expense. And when you're in those situations where like to make partner, you've got to do this. And, you know, there's so much being expected. You can just get right. so stuck in it. And then, like you say, you start comparing yourself. And so you just get more stuck because you don't want to be the person who's not getting all that. So how does somebody get get out? How do they actually start being instead of doing? How do they get there? So I believe that there are two pieces to understand. The first is what we've just covered. Um, what, how you got into this place and, and we probably don't have time to, to dive into all of this, but there are a ton of, uh, you know, for other people, for me, it was big. A, a lot of it was the trauma and the evolutionary biological, but for many other people, it's cultural and social issues, but understanding what it is that led to this behavior is so important because I can't tell you how many times, like I tried to meditate and I tried gratitude lists and, you know, I mean, I, I tried nature bathing and walking on my bare feet in the grass and <laughs> well, taking a conference call, of course, of course, <laughs> but you know, none of that was helping me. And so uh, uh, under without understanding the roots of your behavior, it's very hard to put into place these wonderful other practices, yes. um, but they won't solve the root. But then for, for me, the real actionable takeaway that I would love to leave with people is I was living my life to optimize all of my actions for this equation I referenced early on. Self-worth equals net worth. Yes. And what I came to realize is not only is that really toxic, sick thinking, but there's a much healthier and much more fun way to live your life and, and optimize your actions. And that is financial health plus emotional wealth. And, you know, we are usually chasing after financial wealth. When I say financial health, what I'm talking about is understanding, learning um, the essentials of personal finance so that you can meet your needs today, be all right if there are emergencies, set aside some money for the future and feel joyful and do what you want. That's financial health. Yes. But oftentimes achieving that comes at the expense of our emotional wealth. And we don't stop to think about what are the things that fill that piece of the bucket? What are the things that make our heart sing? And sometimes, you know, hearing that can just sound so huge. And I, I can remember talking to um, a, a girlfriend also um, at a, an intense law firm and talking about emotional wealth. And she's like, Manisha, I don't even know what I like to do. I, I, I have no time to think about anything. Yeah. I've got two kids. I've got to commute. I am trying to make partner. Um, you know, my husband's got his stuff going on. And I, I, what do I like? I, I don't know what I like. Um, and, you know, my lipstick, I mean, <laughs> really. Yeah. And so 
know, what I tell people to do is find one small thing, one small, like ask yourself, what is the next small step I can take to make myself feel richer? Now, that may be um, something like picking up a magazine and giving yourself permission to read it for 30 minutes. It may be um, eating a favorite food. It may be FaceTiming with um, a child or a nephew or a niece. Um, But by first starting really small, because what happens is when you are in that place of never enough, you don't know how to feed that part of you. And so even though, again, it may sound very trite, the learning, the starting to build the muscle of making yourself happy, of slowly identifying what is the life that would make your heart sing. Yeah. Because you're not going to be able to jump all the way to that life. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it's going to take several years. I feel like I'm blessed to have that life now, but um, it took a number of years. And those early steps for me were things like going to a coffee house and allowing myself to sit with a a latte and jazz in the background and write in my journal. Um, And for those who are fans of Julia Cameron and her morning page exercise, doing those. And, you know, so these small, it's like once you start doing these small things regularly, it's like flossing your teeth. Once you start flossing your teeth, you're like, disgusting. How did I ever not floss my teeth? (laughs) You can't go to bed without doing it. And that's what happens to this emotional wealth muscle as you start, as you start first to build the happiness that will then enable you to make the much bigger shifts along the way to achieve a state of financial health. That's your foundation. And then emotional wealth, which is what is what, what makes your life blossom. Mm, so beautiful. And what's so lovely about the fact that you've written this book is that people who consider you you know, you've got the Harvard MBA, people who need to see the pedigree to actually even pick up a book and listen, you're going to give so many people that permission who wouldn't necessarily hear it from even like a Julia Cameron, who's going to tell you to do morning pages. You know what I mean? I think she's phenomenal, but somebody who's still set in that never enough mindset almost needs to see somebody they consider uh, a peer speaking it so that they can actually receive it. And, you know, you had mentioned um, Bipolar 2 and um, uh, your guest who spoke about burnout. And I I just want to mention something about that as well, which is I have struggled with severe depression and anxiety my ever since college. Um, That's the first time I really remember it coming on. And I don't think we talk about it nearly enough. and uh, in my case, it's it's been quite severe at 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 points. And I just want to put it out there because we're starting to open up about mental health. I didn't go into it in the book because I didn't want to confuse stories. But I, I will say here that um, at age forty five. I um, was officially officially diagnosed um, as bipolar two. My grandmother had been manic depressive. She had been institutionalized. She had had electroshock therapy 
I didn't know that for years because, of course, we don't talk about that sort of yes. thing. Mm -hmm. And so I also just want people to know, along with the, the, the pain that can come from having this never enough, sometimes for some of us, there's also another umbrella on top of it that's not small T trauma. It's not social and cultural. It's not evolutionary biology. We may actually have mental health needs that are not being met. Mm. Um, and so I just want to encourage people, um, you know, to know from the outside, I might look like I don't have a care in the world. But until I got the proper help, there were times when, I mean, I can remember at Harvard Business School on the floor in a fetal ball, just sobbing because I had such a severe anxiety attack that I was like, like I was having difficulty getting myself up to go to class. It didn't happen all the time, but it happened. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just want to highlight that as well. You never know from looking at somebody's outsides what's going on and their insides. And I think we're much more alike that, than we may realize. Oh, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I saw that on your website and I thought that's, it was interesting to me that you put it on there. Cause I think you, again, you're trying to normalize and help people understand. Yes. Everything on the outside can look like perfection, but we never know what somebody's struggles are. You may be financially free, but you're managing other things. We all have our, our stuff. We all have our stuff. Exactly. And I, I just feel so strongly the more I can help normalize any of these issues, um, ranging from small T traumas that you feel embarrassed are still bothering you as an adult to yes. struggling with your mental health. Um, addressing all of these things can help, well, not can help, will grow your emotional wealth and help you achieve that place of money zen. Thank you for your generosity of heart and sharing today, because I know it's going to, somebody's going to hear it and it's going to literally just change them. And that makes me feel so happy to know that, you know, somebody's not going to feel alone and they're going to go, okay. And in terms of the tools, I mean, absolutely pick up, like if you're listening, pick up Money Zen. There's plenty of things you're going to learn in the book. It's such an amazingly, I was saying a minute before we started that. I mean, the one good thing about her perfectionism is that <laughs> the book is literally perfection. So that's so important. Just tell us quickly, how do you spend your, spend your days? So just so you know, I'm looking at Manisha now in her 500 foot square cabin in like the middle of Maine right now on, on the water. So I shouldn't say the middle because you're on the, on a lake. So I, um, am, uh, I spent half my year in urban Portland, Oregon for book lovers. I live right behind Powell's bookstore. Um, and then I spend the other half of the year um, in um, this really tiny, simple 1915 uh, cabin. I don't even have potable water here. And I just, I love it because it, um, it uh, enables me to experience um, kind of life in two different ways, which heightens my awareness to both of them and urban life um, that can have complexity and social and cultural pressures to head back in the never enough world. And then this really solitary existence. And it's my hope, um, besides the fact that I 
love living uh, in Oregon and in Maine, that the juxtaposition of those two ways that I'm living will help me continue to find new and new ways to share this message, express this message, and give people more resources for um, finding that and building that foundation of financial health and emotional wealth. Thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Anything I didn't ask you, I mean, we covered a lot. And the truth is like, there could be, there's so could be a part two to this. Like there's so much to unpack, but anything we didn't cover today that you specifically want to make sure people walk away with? You know, there, there's one other thing I want to mention briefly about um, the social and cultural factors, which we hear so much about them, whether it's what we're seeing in social media or what, what we're um, noticing our friends buying and doing. But I can't emphasize just as much as we dove um, so beautifully deeply into the small T traumas, there's a lot of pain in those issues as well. Just because they're called social and cultural, do not for a minute um, think that those don't hurt you or can hurt you as as much. And so I just want people to be gentle with themselves if they read the book and find that that's the area that's really driving their feeling of emptiness or pain. And um, the other thing, um, because you always say I have one thing and then you have two, yeah. is if this has resonated with you, but you're not quite sure kind of where you fall on the, the spectrum of financial health and emotional wealth, um, I have a fun quiz people can take. It's at moneyzenquiz.com uh, that can uh, give you, it's a bit of a lighthearted quiz, but it can help give you a sense of uh, some things to think about. That's, that is fun. I love that you have that. And um, I'm just going to ask you one fun last question, which is what, what does living a good life mean to you, especially with what you've been through now? I'd be interesting what you would have said five years ago too. Um, My answer, I know from the core of my being, it is simplicity, small joys, and financial independence. Um, the irony, Michelle, is that those were the same things I came up with that mental rubric when I was 20 years old, but I had the whole triangle uh, tilted on financial independence and I lost all semblance of small joys and simplicity. So I would say today, a good life for me is one that is just full of small joys and simplicity, whether it's feeling the breeze, taking time to FaceTime my parents who are in their 80s in the evening and check in on them just having a morning cup of coffee with my partner, Jay, or, you know, just feeling what clean pajamas feel like when you put them on, you know, they're, they're just, that, that's what a good life is to me. Simplicity and small joys. I love it. Do you know Khalil Gibran, the prophet? He, there's my favorite quote for in the dew of little things, the heart finds its morning and is refreshed. Yes. Love that. So powerful. Yes. So powerful. So thank you for everything you've shared. So you've given us where the uh, the quiz is. So where do you like to connect with people? Where should I direct them? You know, anybody listening to this uh, that's interested, please go to moneyzenbook.com or you can also go to moneyzen.com. Um, but at Money Zen Book, you'll, you'll get a lot more um, and you take a look and, and hear more about the, the, the backstory and order the book if, if you're interested. Absolutely. And for everyone listening, all of the show notes will be over at thegoodlifecoach.com. I'll have all of Manisha's social handles, the book link, the quiz link, 
And please share this interview. This is an important conversation. It's interesting that each season I do a show, it seems like different themes pop up. This is truly about, this season seems to really be about listening to your voice, connecting to meaning, honoring yourself, loving yourself. Like don't push so hard and really get connected to what brings you joy. So thank you for being a part of that conversation and everything you shared today. Um, and your vulnerability. It's so appreciated. It's just, it just a beautiful conversation. So thank you so much. Michelle, thank you so much for your thoughtful, insightful questions and for having me on and for helping us all get closer to living a good life. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.